Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. The multifamily market has been so hot in recent years that pretty much everyone has prospered. These days, however, many newer operators are so hungry to get deals that they're grossly overpaying and oftentimes undercapitalized. If history repeats itself, a lot of these operators will be underwater and they'll take their investors with them. Today's guest, Neil Bertrand, executive VP of REIT Group Ventures, has been in the business for almost 20 years and seen numerous cycles. Right now, Neil knows of 40 deals in Texas that are either in arrears or in foreclosure. So today I'm very excited to have with us a man I heard on another uh, podcast about a month and a half ago. And as I ease my way into early senility, I don't remember the podcast, but the content was compelling because he's been doing this for so long for some of the biggest uh, apartment companies in the country. Uh, So just amazing, amazing background and perspective that goes back almost 25 years. And so with us today, we have the executive vice president of REIT Group Ventures based in Austin, Texas. We have with us Neil Bertrand. Neil, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thank you for having me. Yep, you got it. And uh, like I said, I'm super excited whenever I get somebody that uh, has just been doing this as long as you have with such a uh, realistic perspective. Let's just put it that way. Before we get into the the uh, the meaty real estate stuff, I see you went to Liberty, which you know turned into a behemoth probably since you were there. I, I think they're probably north of a hundred thousand students once they went online. But so, are you from the East Coast, or or where where are you from originally? No, I'm actually originally from Louisiana, born and raised in a very small town named Opelousas about 15 minutes north of Lafayette. I think everybody knows at least where Lafayette, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans are. Moved to Texas in uh, uh, 1992. Did the Liberty degree online, so didn't have to didn't have to move to Virginia. I got it. And so right out of the gate, I'm literally 180% wrong. You're not from the East Coast, and you, you may never even, had you ever even stepped foot on the Liberty campus? I, you know, I've been to Virginia, but I have not been to Liberty's campus. And, uh, you know, in case you're, in case anybody is wondering about how someone from Louisiana doesn't sound like, uh, they should be on an episode of Swamp People. It was years, years and years of Toastmasters. Oh, that, that is hilarious. But uh, you know what? At the, at the I'm going to take a very large risk in offending you and that I wouldn't put you on Swamp People, but, but I, I wouldn't put you in New York City either. Well, I can I can live with that. <laughs> how, how, did, how, how did your family wind up in Opelousa? Well, you know, um, my my family is from Louisiana. Uh, in fact, we can kind of trace our lineage to the uh, to the French in Nova Scotia that were exiled by the British when Britain took over. So, you know, they made the trip from Nova Scotia and Canada all the way down to Louisiana, which at the time was a French territory. A little disillusioned with the French. So instead of going to New Orleans, they decided to settle west and they decided to settle in, in, in swampland for whatever reason. Wow, that is fascinating. So were they Cajuns? Yes, we are Cajuns. 
Got it. And, and uh, was this in the 1700s when they left Nova Scotia? I believe. Uh, I believe so. It was. It was probably the late 1700s. Wow, that is very very cool. So, did your grandparents speak French? I grew up listening to the morning news in French. Lots of lots of uh, uh, Cajun and Zotico music. A lot of the older relatives, you know, um, the, the culture down there is, is very family oriented and, and, and on the weekends you are always with family. Grandparents, parents, great grandparents, uncles, aunts, uh, they all spoke Cajun French. Wow. Do they still? I mean, the ones that are alive, obviously. Yes, yes. In fact, there's a growing movement there to kind of keep that uh, keep that language alive. And like I said, you know, growing up, there was a morning show called Passepartout, which is uh, French for basically like a master key or you know key lock. And it was literally all it was it was the local news all in French with uh, with some music acts thrown in for for variety. Was this a uh, local radio station? It was a local TV station. Wow. That's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast. I'm passionate about real estate and investing in real estate, but I'm also equally as fascinated by history. And this is, you know, I, I would not have guessed that. So is that TV station still on the air? That show is still on the air. The original host, uh, Jim Olivier, passed away years and years ago, but it's, it's still running. It's still in French. And, and hopefully it will continue for a long time to come. It's, you know, Louisiana, the fascinating thing about Louisiana, it has its own identity. It has its own culture. The area that I'm from, the Acadiana region, uh, you know, you've got the, the Cajun French, you've got the history that comes with it. But then you go to New Orleans and it's a completely different, uh, albeit just as fascinating kind of culture and history there uh, as well. So it's it's one of probably the most, and I'm not saying it because I'm, I'm from there, but it truly is one of the most uh, fascinating and, and unique uh, states in the country. And, you know, it's also one of the places where you can walk into a gas station because the pump's not working and wind up talking to someone for 45 minutes because people are just extremely friendly. Well, I've not been to Lafayette, but I have been to New Orleans several times. And, um, you know, it's one of the places we're debating acquiring property and to live in it, you know, for several months out of the year. But that's, just a, a digression. Here's a question. If you or your, you know, grandparents, if they were alive or if they were in Paris or, uh, you know, in, in Provence or wherever in France, would they be able to converse in a fluent conversation? They, they would, when you think about, so there's three, there's three types of, of major French and there's Parisian French, Canadian French, and then the Acadian French. Uh, the Acadian French is by and large, equivalent to Spanglish, right? Or Texas Spanish. But they, in fact, there's a video on YouTube uh, where you have someone who uh, is a store owner in the Acadiana region of Louisiana. It's being visited by someone from France and, and they're holding a conversation. Probably the big difference is that a lot of Creole and a lot of other languages have, have creeped into uh, the Acadian French. And, you know, there's, there's differences. With Parisian French, it's more proper. Uh, so you're, when you meet someone, you would say, uh, Comment va-t-il? How are you? Uh, whereas where I'm from, it's Comment ça va? Same, same thing, just different ways. Wow. So, so Parisian tends to be a lot more formal. Now, now, now in, in France, they also say Comment ça va? But that's when you're speaking with 
very, very close friends and family. So it's, it's informal. So in your home, what percentage of the time, well, if at all, you know, in your nuclear family, did you spend speaking French versus English? Growing up, there was a combination of both. Unfortunately, our parents didn't uh, really impress upon us to learn the language. And so my brothers and I as adults are trying to to gain that back. Um, and my home now with my wife being being uh, of Mexican and Spanish descent, uh, it's it's split between English and Spanish. And, and I'm trying to greatly improve my Spanish. It's fascinating. I, I did not know this. I did not know it was that current. That is super cool. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. And so why did you move to Texas? As much as I love Louisiana, I just did not have the uh, the desire to work offshore or in a in a plant. Um, there are not the opportunities uh, that you have in in Texas or some of the other states. Um, and and another reason was is because as a teenager, I, I you know started playing bass guitar, and I, I I knew for sure I was going to be a famous rock star. Um, and at the time. Uh, roughly late 80s, early 90s, you had bands like Pantera that had that that were breaking big, and they were from the Dallas area. You had the guitar player from Allison Chains who was from Dallas area. You had Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians who are from Dallas. Uh, CBS Records had uh, a satellite office here, um, so. Uh, a group of guys from Louisiana that had never met, but all somehow wound up in Texas, started a band. And, you know, we were very fortunate to develop a following, do some record company showcases. But um, unfortunately, we did not get to become famous rock stars, which probably is for the better. So here's a, a personal question. So if you went to Liberty, you're probably somewhat oriented towards faith. I don't know if that's mandatory, but I, I have a feeling it is. You, it is part of the admissions process. And so was this something that you've come to later in life post the rock and roll times or is this something that you were born into? No, uh, I was actually born into a Catholic family. Um, of course, uh, kind of going back to the French heritage, you know, Louisiana doesn't have counties, they have parishes. And I grew up in St. Landry Parish, uh, but did not really, you know, obviously when you're a kid, you're forced to go to church. Um, <laughs> and you don't really want to, right? Uh, but it wasn't until later in life, probably late teens, that I really kind of embraced my faith and went more toward a non-denominational direction. I'm, I'm a big fan of Christ, but not a big fan of religion, if that makes sense. It does. So, so you know, had that with me as the young guy playing heavy metal. And of course, like, uh, like a lot of us do, you kind of 
go down your own path before uh, before kind of coming back to where your center is, so to speak. I, I think I get it. How then did, did you get into the boring uh, field of real estate after all that cool stuff? Well, so after the band, uh, you know, didn't become famous, I, I uh, and, and believe it or not, you know, Dallas still has quite a, a great music scene. You know, University of North Texas is here. Their one o'clock lab band is, is a Grammy winning jazz band. Uh, there's a huge recording studio here that everyone from Metallica to Mariah Carey has recorded at. Uh, you'd be surprised the number of people you see on stage playing for uh, Lady Gaga and, and for Mariah Carey and Cher who are from the Dallas area. Uh, so there's a lot of studio work, but uh, back back then, you know, the goal was to get your name written in ink in a producer's little black book. So I met my wife pretty early in life. I was about 21. She was actually already in property management. And of course, there's no way to make a, a marriage work if you're touring and you're living on the road 10 months out of the year. Uh, so I started to look for some other things to do and, and uh, another way to make a living. And my wife kept suggesting property management. You know, she said, you're good with you're good with numbers. Uh, you're good with people. So give it a shot. And I did. And I, I make the joke that she got me into this business and, and I stayed married to her. But because I, I was kind of more uh, oriented towards the, the, the number side, the finance side, I actually uh, my career progressed rapidly. I mean, I started as an assistant manager and then within 18 months, I was actually a regional manager with a portfolio of, uh, you know, a couple of thousand units I was responsible for and just kind of uh, went from there. Wow. Okay. And then um, you worked with some like, I, I, I can't remember, not AIG because they're the big insurance company, but some big national companies and so were though were you in dallas that whole time and what were the nature of those jobs sun i think you worked for for um, space now sunrise i was with sunridge uh they're they're a good sized company the larger companies i worked for the, the were nmhc top 50 firms like lincoln you know everybody knows who lincoln is um jrk out of la uh, Letic, which has a, a strong uh, tax credit division uh, they since changed their name. And then with, uh, with JRK, AIG Sun America actually was in the tax credit game at the time, development and ownership. Uh, so my portfolio was, uh, oh gosh, over 3,000 units of nothing but tax credit and market rate deals. And, and just kind of over the last 25 years, I mean, I've, I've had assets that were, or managed assets uh, that were owned by Hudson Advisor, Carlisle Group, Bank of America, Community Development Corporation, Citibank Real Estate Investment Trust. Very fortunate to have, have uh, worked with private equity groups and, and not worked directly with them, but they were, they were, were the LP and some deals that, that we put together. So it's it's been a great it's been a great ride. I, I I consider myself very very blessed and fortunate that a I have been given the opportunity to work across all property classes. Uh, I make the joke that I've had properties so nice that we had a pet therapist room, and properties so bad that uh, I left my suit jacket at home and took a Kevlar jacket instead. Um, <laughs> I've done you know conventional tax credit. 
uh, HUD financed, uh, senior housing, student housing, new development, rehab, renovation. I was doing rehab and renovation before it was even a thing. I mean, there was a property that uh, Hudson Advisors purchased in Dallas and literally gutted the whole thing. This was back in the late 90s, literally gutted every building and, and rebuilt the entire property. Yeah, you pretty much uh, seen it all. And are you, was that literal a pet therapy room? It was a literal pet therapist room. We had a contract pet therapist who would come out several times a week and you could bring your dog, chinchilla, cat, whatever you had to visit with the pet therapist and and sort out their issues. (laughs) You know, fortunately, this, the podcast, this recording is not going to pick up the fact that, because I'm in my, I do this out of my basement and upstairs you can't hear it fortunately but i've got my you know 13 pound mutt you know he, he doesn't look i don't even know what he is he, he's a little te- little bit chua, but he could need some therapy i got i got news for you man because he, he barks all day long and I'm, I'm not sure what his issues are but he's got the whole family wrapped around his finger and anyway so um executive VP of REIT Group Ventures. And so what are you guys doing now? It looks like you're doing a lot of multifamily, but not exclusively. So what what is the thrust? And is it, are you guys doing fund? Are you doing single asset stuff and all that good well, stuff? We consider ourselves opportunistic. So, you know, right now we've got uh, uh, five legacy assets that uh, Ravi uh, purchased in 2015. They were literally condemned, uh, heavy value add deals, you know, the kind of deals that you buy for literally pennies on the dollar. Uh, and, and we are finishing up a lot of the rehab and the lift on those. We now uh, have on our plate $1.4 billion in new development projects which are three projects, the first being 168 uh, units. It's a, it's a duplex build to rent community that's in Lago Vista. All three of these projects are north of Austin. So that's in Lago Vista. In Cedar Park, we have a 370 unit mixed use, 60,000 square foot of retail on the first floor, seven story wrap design. That's actually part of the city of Cedar Park's Bell Boulevard redevelopment project. And then in Leander, we have, uh, you know, the, the behemoth, uh, 78 acre master plan development, three apartment communities that will total 1600 units, office, retail space, about a million square feet, working with a, a name hotel to build 250 rooms with a 20,000 square foot conference center. And all of that will surround the only, what will be the only publicly accessible uh, Crystal Lagoon in Central Texas. Wow. Okay. And then, so you've got those legacy heavy value ads, and now you've got these development projects. Are you guys moving away from, you know, acquiring existing multifamily to strictly ground up projects? Or like you say, is it just, you know, if the right deal came across, you'd take it? Or, you know, what, what's the thinking? It's for us, it's always opportunity. So we, we, you know, we're not going to say that we only do new development uh, or we only do class A, B or C, but with the way the market is now with the way pricing is, we are honestly building these developments for uh, 40 to 50 K less per door 
than what we would purchase, say, a Class A deal that was built in 2017. So it just makes sense economically uh, to build these things right now, and especially to build where we are, where Leander, for example, has had uh, 765% population growth since the year 2000. Um, the city is on board with this project. Uh, they love it, and they see it as an opportunity to to move some of these uh, tech companies, to basically lure some of the tech companies from dropping themselves out of California right into Austin to going a little north and, and having kind of a total live-work-play environment for their employees. Um, but just right now with the way pricing is going, with the compressed cap rates, it is honestly, it just makes more sense to develop. Interesting. So that's comparing just for the heck of it, what it costs to build versus, you know, buying a class A that's, you know, within the last five, built within the last five years. Does that, you know, and I understand cap rates have gone down for all asset classes, but I wonder how would you compare that to a class B value add? Let's just say the piece of it of cost to build how does that even factor in because it's a, it's kind of weird because it's not exactly an apples to apples but how, how does that flesh out you know it, and it's it's not really an apples to apples but there's there's uh things to consider on both sides so you know when you do a a class b value add depending on the vintage you you know you're you're picking up something that's already been around for uh gosh, 30, 40 years, right? I mean, I looked at something yesterday. I looked at a deal yesterday uh, built in 1983, 330 units. Um, it's a unicorn. Uh, it's, it's been through several owners with pretty much zero interior uh, upgrades. But when you buy something that's that old, you are inheriting deferred maintenance issues. You are inheriting a history of uh, probably who knows how many different maintenance guys that didn't know what they were doing band-aid duct tape bad jobs older structure and all of the things that come with it to a property that you build brand new and your appliances are under warranty the first year and you know you've got uh, uh, five years on those things before they start going out you also have a, a difference in demographic base you know Class A demographics is not as hard on on apartments as being you know B minus and C demographics. You you know it's on the B side. Yes, can you get uh, some great value? You know, can you get some great rent premiums on a value add if you if you buy it at the right price and in the right area? You sure can. But it also comes with a host of deferred maintenance issues, um, uh, just a higher turn cost for every turn. So it's it's a different animal all the way around. I mean, if it has a sprinkler system, you're dealing with a 40-year-old irrigation system. So think about all of those things that are included in the mix that that will affect the bottom line from just normally you know, the normal operations of a B deal. Some of these um, newer operators, let's say that have been, you know, been to s seminars or boot camps or you know, have coaches or whatever, and they've been, they've jumped in in the last two to five years buying exactly what you're describing and they're underwriting against certain metrics. But let's say interest rates go up a point and a half to two points, which is possible. A lot of people don't think it'll happen that quickly, but, but it is possible. Do you think some of these people are going to be underwater or what's your kind of prognostication for the market as a whole and as it pertains to multifamily. Yeah, you know, I I'm I'm very fortunate that I've I've seen a couple of cycles, right? 
I'm even more fortunate that my, my mentor, and he's not, a, he's not a coach or a guru, the guy built a billion dollar real estate investment company, started in the business the year I was born. So I've, I've had wise counsel for a long time. And there is something coming, right? Uh, the government, the Fed's doing their best to try and avoid it, but we all know that there's something coming. I, and I, I was having this conversation with a friend of, with, with a friend of mine who is uh, very experienced and he's very, very gung-ho on Texas. And uh, I made the comment that with the way pricing is going, I'll just wait 18 months and pick the deal up at the foreclosure, you know, the courthouse steps in foreclosure. And his response was, is foreclosure in Texas, you're going to be waiting a long time. And I said, well, I've got a list of about 30 deals all in the four major markets in Texas that are, uh, their loan is in arrears or they are facing foreclosure. Because, and here's the thing, right? And, and this, does, this does not apply to everyone coming out of, of these mentor programs, because I have friends that came out of these programs and they kept their head down. They kept their head in the book. They learned. They did it right. They weren't caught up in the flash and the glitz uh, and, and the sales pitch and the Kool-Aid. But there's a lot of not so great advice that comes out of these guru programs, such as it's okay to overpay for the deal. Uh, the market will catch up. Uh, I think we have enough history to show that A, you know, real estate is cyclical. B, history always repeats itself. And C, those who don't learn from history are, are doomed to repeat it. So I think what we're going to have is, you know, you've got people that have used underwriting models designed for speed as opposed to accuracy. And what you sacrifice there is being able to drill down and adjust every single variable on a deal to get the most accurate, realistic picture. I've done this exercise with, uh, you know, the type of underwriting model that I've sent to Ally Bernstein and Sapphira and Garrison and Prudential versus a guru model, uh, underwriting model. And the guru models inflated returns were like four, five, 6% higher on the IRR side. So it's not an accurate representation. So you do have, you know, you've got people who A, were so hungry to get a deal, they overpaid, right? They're not capitalized. It is coming. I mean, all it takes is, you know, if you look at just payroll and insurance alone, they're taking heavy hits. There are just a lot of people that will be underwater. And I think we're going to see, you know, if, if I, I think you and I are around the same age and you probably recall kind of that development crash in the 80s. I think you're going to see a lot of the same, the same thing happen. And it's interesting because I was reading uh, uh, the book, a book on, on, on Trammell Crow, and his comment was, is, you know, he, he mentioned that a certain group was to blame. He said lenders were to blame for this because they were just throwing money out to, to anyone who called themselves a developer, and here we are, right? And it's kind of the same thing now. I always say, you know, the best thing about real estate investing is anyone can do it. The worst thing about real estate investing is anyone can do it. And it really is coming from my background and, and 25 plus years in and, and institutional and, and, and really cutting my teeth and paying my dues and earning my stripes. Uh, it's really just frustrating to know that in the state of Texas, there's more required education to cut hair than there, yeah. than there is to go out and and raise $10 million for a $30 million deal. Well, you know, I uh, the biggest mistake I ever made 
when it comes to business. I bought a cosmetology school, and so um, you know, I, I you know, I know, man, you got to go get you got to get a state license to be a barber. I get it. What what other mistakes do they make other than you know where are the holes in the uh, common holes in today's underwriting with overzealous young newbies other than insurance and payroll? What are the what are the big mistakes? So one of the big mistakes is listening to people that really don't have as don't have much more experience than you, right? It's it's I call it without meaning to offend anyone. It's like a group of white belts and there's no black belt around and they're just telling each other like how badass their technique is. That's that's kind of what it is, right? And where they where they they miss the ball is because they're in this enclosed little environment, this enclosed uh, us uh, isolated environment where everybody's high fiving and giving each other pats on the back. Uh, and telling each other they're experts that not many of them go outside of that and and try to learn more. So I'll give you an example. You take uh, take any one of these underwriting models that come out of you know, I'll just I'll, I'll say it. Michael Block's underwriting model, right? You can't drill down unit by unit, isolate out on a deal. You know, let's for sake of round numbers, two hundred unit asset, twenty five units have already been upgraded. There's 175 value add. You're not going to do all 175. Those models, because they're designed for speed, you just throw in a blanket increase across the board. So now what you've done is you've artificially increased the rents on units that are already at the top of the market, right? So you skewed your returns already by saying that you're going to get $175 on 25 units that are already at the top of the market. Also, it's all round numbers. You're with with these with these underwriting models. You're you're throwing out. Oh, I think it's going to be three thousand, five thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand uh, a unit for capex. Whereas with a more detailed underwriting model uh, like the one I use, you can actually go in and and if there's partial upgrades, then you can factor in what's going to take. Uh, dollar-wise to move those partials to full upgrades, what it's going to take to move the the classic units to either a partial or a full upgrade. And then you can actually go in and break out the, you know, 25, 30,000 for a playground, 10, 15 for a thousand for a dog park, and you get a very accurate number. Uh, so the big mistake that they're making is, is they're sacrificing accuracy to say that they have underwritten 30 deals in a week. Scary. They, they don't like it when you tell them that their underwriting is wrong. I'm sorry. No, it, it's very frightening because there's so many of them out there. They're in droves, and you know this better than I do because you're doing this every every second of, of every day. And so, wow, that's why I wanted to interview you. It is frightening, and um, there you go. Well, I mean, does the prospect of, inter- you know, if it goes up, and I keep saying 2%, and the reason is is because I just read something last night in The Economist magazine, which is, I think, pretty credible. How does that impact uh, you guys in terms of your underwriting for the, the ground up stuff you're doing? You know, really, because when you're when you're developing uh, and, and we're very fortunate because we if, if you're familiar with uh, with Austin at all, there's a, a project called the uh, domain that was built several years ago. We're, and, and it was all done with uh, very high level nationally recognized project managers, contractors, engineers, architects. We're using a lot of the, the, the same groups that did the domain. So there's, there's more control 
on the expense side and and really with Austin the way it is right now, I, I literally have to update my underwriting on these on these new development deals every four to six months because the market rents out there uh, and the actual uh, street rents, what people are achieving is literally jumping $200. I mean, I think I think uh, the last thing I read, which was a few days ago, is like 30, 37% uh, rent increases for Austin. So we've, we've got that, right? And we're hitting it at a we're hitting it at a time where there's still the in migration, and there's still the growth. So I don't think we're necessarily going to be impacted. We're and we're working on arranging and, and finalizing our financing now, so we can lock in at, at the current rates on our construction loans, and then trying to prepare in advance to roll out of those loans and into more permanent financing. But just by virtue of the locations that we're building in, the growth that's coming in, we're going to be good. I would not try and do this project uh, in another, you know, something of this magnitude in another city right now in Texas, just because Austin's growth is just so phenomenal. And it's probably going to trend for another five to eight years. It's very interesting. You know, I, uh, I LP'd on a, I just used LP as a verb. I'm an LP in a, uh, I'm laughing because it's exactly what you described earlier. Class B, I think it was built. I don't know when it was built, but I think in the eighties, yeah, it was built in the eighties, maybe 86 or something like that. And it's, it fits to a T what you described earlier, uh, in the East Riverside area, and it closed maybe about about a year and a half ago ish, something like that. And uh, the operators are not totally wet behind the ears, but compared to you, they are. They've got maybe eight apartment complexes under their belt. I think they're smart guys. One of them's based in Austin, which I had, you know, I got some solace from that. Lived there his entire life. And, you know, I, I went in as, as an A share. A, they, they broke it into A and B class shares. And so I've gotten my distributions, you know, timely and full and et cetera. And I am thinking to myself that despite whatever their lack of experience is, I think that they and I, by association, will just be carried by the velocity of that market. The rents projected were like 1300 I'm in the Bay Area. And so to me, I'm thinking that it's just, you know, with, with all the, you know, Oracle and Tesla and Apple, I'm thinking to myself, these, these, these are high paying jobs. I mean, these are not service jobs. I'm thinking that should be rent that people can pay. And so I'm, I'm not surprised, I guess, of course, everything's clear in hindsight that rents are going up. No. And, and, you know, you've got to also think that people coming from like, like Ravi, uh, our CEO is from the Bay Area. He, he lived out there for about 15 years. But, you know, people migrating in from uh, California, from Chicago, from New York and coming to Texas, to them, a $1,500 a month or $2,000 a month two bedroom apartment, that's music to their ears. It's like right? free. Huh? It's like free. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just music to their ears. So for them, it's nothing. They don't bat an eye at it, right? Um, but what, you know, what I'm looking at is, for those people who are not coming in and that's not their mindset, you know, let's be honest, we can only, we can only push so much, just like you can only buy a class B deal that was built in 1983 for 200,000 a door, right? 
there's only so much you can you can push before it has to stop. Are you are you know what's interesting to watch is I mean Blackstone's now entering the single family rental space, right? And I know here uh, where I am, I actually live in Dallas. Robbie's in Austin, and our corporate office is in Austin. But I mean, I can rent a three bedroom home here in my area, uh, which is a very, it's in, it's in Carrollton near, near Castle Hill. It's kind of a high end area. I can rent a, a, a three bedroom home that has an office, a media room, a pool with a waterfall and a lake view for 3000 a month. Is that right? No kidding. Even still. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you're, if you, and, and the maintenance, you know, the maintenance is all taken care of, right? So if you're a renter and you are looking at, man, I'm going to pay $2,500 a month for this, this apartment, or I can go rent a town home with the same maintenance set up and I don't have to take care of anything for 2,500 bucks a month. What am I going to do? You know, and in fact, right down the street from me is one of the first SFR communities that was, that was built in our area. So if the apartment guys get too greedy, and, and the thing is, is again, kind of going back to new people coming in, they haven't seen the crash. They don't know what it's like to fight for a lease. They don't know what it's like to have to offer a drawing to win a Jeep or a cruise in order to get people to lease. It's, it's very, very, you know, I hate to put it this way, but you have to be an idiot to lose money right now. That's how good this market is, but it's not going to last. And so, I mean, I've seen it. I, I have seen properties that were at their break-even occupancy, right? I've seen deals. Uh, I, I worked receivership deals that uh, uh, went back to the bank. And if you don't have that experience or if you're just ignoring it or if you're just not acknowledging that it can happen, you're not going to be prepared and it's going to be a very bad day for you and your investors. And no one, you know, no one wants to see that. We don't want to see people lose money. I got it. Very, you know, boy, I, I just so much appreciate this conversation because it's so real. And um, yeah, I mean, like you said at the top, history repeats itself and there's always a regression to a mean, you know, fundamentals are fundamentals and some things never change. And so I get it. Well, um, very, very interesting conversation. If if someone, Neil, were to be so inclined to want to get a hold of you or if you want to entertain a, a conversation with somebody, how, how would they go about getting a hold of you? Yeah. Anyone, uh, anyone who'd like to visit with me can, can email me at neil, N-E-I-L, at reitgroupx.com. Or uh, text or call me at 972-849-5707. Got it. Neil, uh, this has been absolutely uh, more than what I expected it to be. And I had high expectations. So I, I very, very much appreciate the time in the interview. Roger, I appreciate you inviting me on. And I enjoyed our conversation as well. You got it. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. See you later. <laughs>